My prayer this morning as we open the scriptures together is that you will have that desire to be tasting, to be like those wildebeest. I guarantee as the first guy got in there and put his head down and began to drink, they just there's a flood of guys behind him and they're all drinking as deeply as they can because they had an intense longing, a thirst. Interesting that the words of Jesus on the cross include these words, I thirst. There's a thirst for him. And I think he meant definitely the the water he needed, the moisture he needed. But I think even beyond that, there was a thirst for his father, a thirst for the fellowship and relationship that he had. The second song, we sang it earlier, was this one. Um, Behold our God seated on his throne. Come let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come let us adore him. It's our desire this morning, not just to be to taste and see and, and enjoy the sweetness of God, but it's also our desire to come and look and see Jesus. If you've uh, been here for a couple of weeks or you've heard me talking or been at the Bible studies or anything like that, I never stop talking as those of you know me well. No, that's true. One of the things that comes up again, you've heard it probably is 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18, which is this. Beholding as in a mirror... Dimly, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit. What's that mean? Why we, why we keep going back there? Why do I keep talking in the sermons the last couple of weeks and months about seeing the glory of Jesus in the text before us? Because as we see those things, we are being changed. We become like the thing that we desire and the thing that we worship. You look at these kids going to school and you see them walk down the street and they're all dressed and they're all made up and they're all got the same haircuts as their favorite pop star, their favorite idols. And they're becoming the thing that they're worshiping in their simple way. Well, the reality of that, that same principle applies to all of us as Christians. And Paul says, listen, we behold, we look. In the scriptures, like through a mirror, dimly and darkly, and we want to see Jesus. We want to see the glory of our Savior, and we want to be transformed into that image. Changed to look like Jesus. That's what this is all about. Being changed to be made more like Christ. Well, with that uh, extemporaneous introduction, take your Bibles, please. Go to the book of Mark again. We've been enjoying the book of Mark for a couple of months now. Mark chapter 6. And this morning I want to look at the story, this little brief story, Mark 6, and there's seven verses here, and you could go to Luke chapter 4 if you wanted to, and you could see um, what I regard to be the same event, but told from a different perspective. A lot of scholars would actually disagree with me and say Luke 4, wherein Jesus says, Behold, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to preach the gospel, and so on. They say it's a different account. I think it's the same, same, same occasion. But it's told from a different perspective and it has different details in the book of Mark than Luke has. I want to read for us a couple of verses. On your, your chair there should be one of these sheets floating around. Uh, we put them out. Karen had a great idea to put them on every second seat so you can all reach over and grab one. Uh, you can keep score of where we're up to. You can take notes. It's up to you. But I'll kind of give you some verses and some uh, helps there as well. I want to read Mark 6, 1 to 7. I'm not going to read Luke 4. It's there as a kind of a reference for you. Then I want to look at those other verses just for context to show you where we're going and what our goals are today as we spend time in God's Word together. So let's read 
Mark 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm reading from an NASB, and it says this. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages and teaching. Take your Bibles and flip over to Psalm 119. I would love to just barrel through Psalm 119 and fire out all these great little verses about the Lord Jesus and about the Word of God, but that would take us most of our time, and so we won't do that. But I want to just highlight just a couple of them for you. Uh, Psalm 119 and verse number 18 says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119 verse 36 over the page says this, He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Or not literally, not to gain. So bend my heart, take my heart, and bring it over to your testimonies. Let me see your word. Incline my heart towards your word. And then Psalm number 86. Just flip back a few pages to Psalm 86. In verse 11, it says this, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. And then he prays, Unite my heart to fear your name. Bring all those bits and pieces of my heart that are going in every different direction, bring them all together, tie them together, so that they come in and they fear the name of the living God. One last verse before we go back to the book of Mark. In Isaiah, one of my many favorite verses in the Bible, Isaiah 66 and verse 2. And it says this, part way down, and I'll read the whole verse. He says, For my hands made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This is the one that God will show His favor, turn His face of grace and blessing toward. It's the one who has humble and contrite spirit and who trembles at the Word of God. Isaiah 66 and verse 2. Well, let's pray and then we're going to go back in the book of Mark. Father in heaven, this morning we plead with You and we ask You for Your blessing, O God. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of all of us in this room, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Like those deer who are panting and longing for the living God. Father, our hearts are longing to hear what you would say to us. And Father, this morning I plead with you that you would speak, that my voice would grow silent at the pulpit. But your voice, the voice of the Spirit of the living God, would speak into the heart of every person in this room that we would hear what you would have to say. Father, we pray that you would unite each heart in this room to fear the name of the living God. 
And Father, we pray again that we would see Jesus. We would see the glory of who He is and what He has done. And Father, we would be as a whole group. Father, as I preach, may my heart be worshiping You. And Father, as we all listen to Your voice speaking, may we be responding in worship for the living God. And we ask You these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our goal this morning is to see the dangers of fearless familiarity. That's what happened to these people in Nazareth. They had a great problem. They had become so familiar with Jesus and all they knew about Him. I don't know if you know this or realize this, but Jesus spent 27 years in Nazareth. Nine times as long as He spent in all His ministry everywhere else in the New Testament. 27 years. Nine times as long. And they had become so familiar with Him, they remembered the stories of His birth, they remembered all these other things, and familiarity had bred contempt in these people. And we as a church face a danger every time we open the Scriptures, is that familiarity with the living God without worship, without a fearing of God's name, can possibly lead us to pride and contempt, just like they felt, just like they were under. And so my goal this morning is to see the dangers of fearless familiarity with the living God and to behold, secondly, behold the glories of Christ in fear and trembling. i got an outline there. I struggle with outline headings. I sometimes want to put one word. Occasionally I just want to put number one and a blank line. You can put the outline heading if you want, but I'll give an outline anyway. It's like this. Nazareth, a small town with a big problem, or you could say Nazareth, the town that knew too much. Either way, it sort of works, okay? Second point is this. Familiarity breeds contempt. And we're going to look most of our time at that one. And lastly, I want to end the time by turning all of our attentions to see the glory of Jesus in fear and trembling together. Well, beginning with the book of Nazareth, the story of Nazareth. Not the book of Nazareth, the book of Mark. So he says there in Mark chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. Now, have you noticed, if you read, if we're going through the book of Mark, you see he's living and he's focused in Capernaum. That's kind of the center of his ministry. He calls it his home place. But this is his hometown. This is Nazareth where he has grown up and spent more time. It's about 20 miles distant from uh, Capernaum where he is using as his home base. Now, you think about Nazareth and all these people in this little town. It wasn't a big place. It might have been the size, oh, probably of Bunyip or... Garfield, one of those little tiny spots out on the Princess Highway there. It was a little town. And they had known all about Jesus and all about His history. We know that uh, Mary grew up there. Her family lived there. She began her life there. She was betrothed to Joseph in the town of Nazareth. We know the story. And they would have known also the story of the news of her sudden pregnancy. Her unexpected pregnancy and all of the the darkness and a little bit of the shadow that surrounded that. And those people would have remembered Mary. It would have been a public thing. And everybody would have known as she slowly swelled in her belly with a child. And Nazareth knew all about it. They knew the circumstances, but not the total truth of his birth. They knew of Jesus' youth and his childhood. After three years, they came back from Egypt and they're living in Nazareth. And little Jesus, as he goes off at six and seven years of age, with all the other young boys, he would have gone off to the local synagogue. And it's like a school. And he would have been raised in that school. And I'm not going to speculate like some people do about 
what Jesus was like, and they make all of these bizarre and sometimes blasphemous speculations about what Jesus was like as a child. I'll simply tell you what the Bible says. We know absolutely that he was sinless and perfect. So unlike every other kid, right? Who's ever been to a school and little kids are running around? How many of them are sinless? Not a one, right? So he would have been markedly different. I was thinking about how to describe it. It's like a massive black field, right? And a one bright, shining white spot in the middle. So looking up at night sky and you see the moon in all of its full brightness and whiteness and the whole black sky around it. That would have been Jesus. Radically different than everybody else in that little school. They would have known him as he grew up and went to not rabbinical school. Everybody else had the opportunity to go there, but not Jesus. For some reason, he stayed at home. He worked in his father's workshop. We know that he was apprenticed to his father about 13 or 14 years of age. He would have worked in his father's carpenter shop. It's not carpenter like we do today with uh, cordless skill saws and cordless everything, building houses. He probably did the most crudest basic work, building plows and yokes for the yoke of oxen, yokes of men to carry weights with. It was a very crude, simple form of woodworking. He grew up in his father's shop. He worked there. They would have known Jesus. Imagine all the tradesmen and all their practices, their honest practices and Jesus would have stood out like a sore thumb because he was the only one doing everything morally right he never sinned in everything he did I absolutely believe that Jesus grew up like a man and he had to learn skills he learned how to handle the woodworking plane how to handle the chisel he did that's not sin in learning those things He grew in wisdom and stature, but he did all those things without any trace of sin or moral wrongdoing. He still would have stood out. The people of Nazareth knew Jesus all through those years. They knew his business activities. They knew he lived a sinless life in perfect morality. They knew of Jesus' involvement for 13 years in the synagogue. And I'm sure like every other young man from 13 years of age all the way up to 26, 27 years of age, when he left to go into ministry, he would have been involved in the regular worship services of the synagogue. They would have seen him. Jewish culture, by the way, held that an illegitimate birth was never to be used against the person so long as they lived a life that was pleasing to God. So nobody would have come up and said, oh, you're Jesus. Who's your daddy? They never would have done that. It was held that as long as he lived a life that was pleasing to God, that was his parents' mistake, his parents' problem. He was always treated to be treated with respect and honor as a person. They never held it against him until they saw him as living an apostate life. Keep that in the back of your mind. It's going to come back a little bit later on, okay? They would have watched him as he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. Luke 2.52 ends that chapter of his boyhood by making that simple statement. He went back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph and he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God. We knew he lived in Nazareth all those years. And then he left there and he went out to minister from Capernaum. And then in Mark 6, chapter verse 1, he returns to his hometown. And I want you to notice... For the first time in all these major series of events, as Mark unpacks them, it doesn't say that a crowd gathered. 
If you look back in verses 1 and verse 21 and 1 and verse 33, 2 and verse 2, 4 verse 1, 5 verse 21, 3 verse 7, 3 verse 20. Don't have to write them all down. If you look back there, you'll see again and again and again, wherever he goes, wherever he shows up, a crowd of people comes running to see him. And now he goes back to his hometown. And nobody comes. It's 20 miles away. News traveled. Even in those days, it would have gotten around. They would have heard of his miracles. They would have heard about lepers being cleansed. They would have heard about demons being cast out. No doubt the news of Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. In the preceding chapter, the news would have made its way all the way over to Nazareth. But nobody comes out. I think that's strikingly significant. No crowd gathered. He was a local boy, if you like. I don't mean that disrespectfully. He was a local boy come home. Notice Jesus begins to teach in the synagogue. Notice also, by the way, he brings his disciples with him. This wasn't a visit home. Jesus didn't take a sabbatical. You know, guys, I'm going to go over to Nazareth, see mom and dad. You know, maybe help out dad in the workshop for a while. I'm going to take about two weeks off. I'll be back. We'll carry on with ministry. No, no. He took the disciples with him. And the whole 12 of them trooped over there. And they came walking into Nazareth. And nobody's there to meet him. He goes into the synagogue on the Saturday morning. And he would have sat down. And the custom was... That if you were a visiting rabbi, a visiting teacher, you were given the opportunity, the honor of rising and reading the scriptures and then giving an exposition. Their services were much like ours today. And he's given that privilege. And the Bible says in, in Mark 6 and verse 2, he began to teach. And he starts to teach. And you're wondering, what did he say? I think maybe the words recorded in Luke 4 about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel and so on. I think as he began to speak those things, all of a sudden a murmur starts to shift through the crowd. And the Bible says that his listeners, many listeners, were astonished. Now, if you go back to Mark 1 and verse 22 and Mark 1 and verse 27 and Mark 2 and verse 7, you see the same word, my Bible says, amazed over there. It's the same Greek word. And over there, first of all, they're amazed at this man who has such great teaching. They're amazed that he can cast out demons with a word. They're amazed and they glorify God when he raises, not raises, he heals a paralytic. But here the Bible says they were astonished and it wasn't an amazement or astonishment of glorifying God because of this man. Now it's pride. And contempt. Listen to what the, the text says. And I read it with some emphasis before to kind of give you the point. And you get the full meaning of it at the end of verse 3. They took offense at him. They were offended at Jesus was saying these things. He says, where did this man get these things? And they're raising a point of contemption. Contemption. That's a new word. Contemption. They're raising a point of pride. They're, they're offended at him because of what he's doing and what he's saying. His gracious words, his wisdom, his teaching, which clearly came from God. This is Jesus. Where did this man get this stuff? Where did he get his teaching? And what we see there is how familiarity has bred contempt and pride. That's the second point there. Notice they were amazed. We said that already. Their amazement is out of pride and contempt. Notice what they do. They question Jesus a number of points. Look at this. They question, first of all, the source of his teaching. Where did these, this man get these things? Remember I said earlier, 
Jesus worked in the, in the workshop of his father. He grew up in Nazareth. He didn't go off to the rabbinical schools in Jerusalem and sit under the feet of Gamaliel like we know that Paul did. He was just a young boy who grew up. He was a rough, sort of crude, woodworking fellow, making tools and implements and so on out of wood. And they said, where does he get this teaching? Where does he get it from? And they questioned, first of all, the source of his teaching. They questioned the nature of his wisdom. Look what they say. Where did he get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And you can see in their words, they had absolutely ruled out that Jesus was anything more than a common, ordinary Jewish young man. And they ruled out the possibility that he might be what his words and his works and his miracles testified him to be, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They ruled it out. It wasn't possible for them. Their pride had blinded them. Notice also they questioned the nature and the power of his miracles. Look what they say. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. It's like, look me, you put me in front of a piano, right? And you all stand behind the piano and I put my hands down and I start playing uh, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony in B flat or something. I don't know. I don't know about music. And you'd be looking going... Where did he get the hands to play like that? It's ridiculous. I can't play piano to save my life. And that's the same contemptuous attitude that they're betraying towards him. They're questioning the nature of his miracles. They also question the origins of his person. Book of Mark begins with what statement? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all those things, as we work through Mark 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, are proving over and over again that He is the Son of the living God. And they're saying, is this not the Son of Mary? And you can, you can see them in their words, the jab. What they were doing was they were throwing the most violent insult that they could at Him. Remember I said before that a, man, a boy or a child was born illegitimately that was never to be spoken or used against him unless he was found to be living a lifestyle that was not pleasing to God. So what they're saying in, in saying, aren't you the son of Mary? In other words, we don't know who your father is and neither do you. It's a, it's a jab. It's one of the most insulting things that they can say to him and they punch him with it. And they add, hey, listen, you know what? His brothers and his sisters and they're all here. And they're offended at him. The Nazarenes had observed without fear and without humility. They had become familiar with Jesus without the fear of the living God. And that familiarity had bred contempt and pride. And because of that contempt and pride, they were blinded to the glory of Jesus. They could have stood there in the synagogue or sat around the benches as Jesus stood up at the bench and read the scriptures and sat down and began to teach. And they could have looked down at him and said, hey, like the ones in Capernaum said, who is this man that he teaches this way? He teaches with authority and not like the scribes. They could have looked at him and said, hey, who is this man? He's more than just Jesus the carpenter. He's far more than that because look at the miracles he does. Look at the wisdom. They could have been awed. But no. Their contempt and their pride had blinded them to the glory of who He was. Their pride had deafened them to the grace of Jesus' words. And they took offense to Him. They literally rejected Him with those words. So here we're, so it comes to home. Casey Bible Church, listen. 
We must beware of familiarity without fear and without humility. I have been banging away at you as hard as I can for nearly four years now. Get into your Bible. Read your Bible. Pray every day. Read, read, read. Soak up the Scriptures. And I have to tell you that 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 is both the most important thing and potentially the most dangerous thing of all. You say, how could that possibly be? If you open your scriptures and every day as you work, work through them and read them and it just becomes words going into your mind and words going over your eyes and there's no fear of God, there's no trembling and fear and humility before the word of God, before the presence of the living God, it is terribly dangerous because we will become so familiar with the living God without that fear and without that humility and the danger is we'll become prideful. And all of a sudden we're like, ah, you know, we've seen it. There's something else here. It applies especially to parents of little kids. And there's only a couple in the room, but I want you to listen. There is both a terrible danger and a terrible blessing of raising kids in a Christian home. There is a terrible, terrible danger. Your kids hear it at morning, noon, and night. You sit down, you get the kids together, you give thanks for food. You sit down, you read the Bible together. They get taken to church, they get taken to youth group, Sunday school, Christian school. They get fed with all kinds of Christian stuff all through their life. They grow up and they're surrounded by Christian culture and they're soaking it up. But without the fear of God... In their hearts, they become so familiar with it that it means nothing to them. The greatest danger is, and you can see it, you go into youth groups and you hear these kids are talking. They know just enough Bibleese, just enough Christianese to be absolutely cynical about all of the things of a living God. They've lost their awe and their amazement and their wonder who Jesus is. Young people, listen to me. There is a terrible danger that you face. Your parents' faith is your parents' faith. You must make it your own. Parents, listen. You absolutely must make your kids understand that salvation does not go by the Woodley last name or by the Wolf last name or by the Atwood last name. It goes from person to person to person to person. They must make it their own. And I can tell you right now, as a young man, I grew up in a Christian home my whole life. I was born, I went to church, I think, the following Sunday. And I was, I've never been out of church. But it wasn't until in my late teens and early 20s when I began to wrestle through these things for myself and make them my own. And familiarity had bred contempt in my heart. And the answer is, well, what do we do about this? How do we stop this from happening? How is it that we do not become like those who just read the book and we're so used to seeing the miracles? How many of us have read the words, and God created the heavens and the earth, and you just keep right on reading? Here is the massiveness of that one statement. God created the heavens and the earth. We read it so quickly. We read the stories. Jesus, you know, made water into wine. Moses split the water and went through. You know, they just, you know, fell down from heaven. Elijah, Mount Carmel. We've heard the story so much. It just becomes so familiar with us. We have lost that ability to be, ability to be awed by Scripture. Familiarity can breed contempt. These people, these Nazarenes, 
For 27 years, they watched him come and go. For 27 years, they watched one single, sinless, spotless human being who would have stood out like a sore thumb, and they let it watch him come and go, and all they could think about was the way he was born, and they ruled him out. There was no fear, there's no humility in their faces before him. How do we, how do we deal with it? What's the, what's the antidote to the danger? Now, I don't like plagiarizing, so I'm going to tell you right now. I got some help from this. Uh, John Piper was preaching a message on preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he made this comment as part of preparation. And I thought, you know what? It just fits exactly what we need to hold in hand as we come to the Scriptures. So, as you're reading your Bible, that's how you soak up more of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you do to prevent it from becoming so familiar? And we've already covered a bunch of these verses, but Psalm 119.36 We get on our faces before God and we ask the living God, incline my heart to your word. Meaning what? Take my heart and bend it towards your word. Give my heart the receptiveness to hear what your word is saying. Psalm 119, 18. Yeah. Open my eyes to see. How many times you read your Bible and you got, you know, you Moses, and you all finish. You close your Bible. And you turn around, you put your Bible down, and you go, what did I just read? I have no idea. I can't remember a thing, right? And you go back. And you know what the problem for us is? We're not reading with the intentionality to see the wonderful things of God and the Word of God. And the psalmist says, listen, open my eyes. Open the eyes of my heart. Open my will to see wonderful things in your Word. In your law, in unite my heart to fear, satisfy us. Psalm 90 verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. In other words, as we're reading scripture and we're seeing the love of God laid out before us, satisfy us with the steadfast love of the Lord. I was watching, um, you watch YouTube. Uh, Joe was talking about YouTube before. And you see all these things on YouTube and, and it's amazing how... You see one thing, and it's kind of amazing. Wow. And then you watch it. It's like, oh, it's kind of ordinary. And they come up with something a bit better, and a bit better, and a bit better again, right? It's like computers. How many people here still use Windows 95? Anybody? (laughs) He's laughing. Windows 95, it's so old. I remember when Windows 95 came out. I remember when it was the biggest thing. I remember when Windows 98 came out, and people were lined up around the block for hours to get the first copy of Windows 98. You think, wow, it's so cool. What is it now? Ancient history, right? And we've got Windows, what, 10 or something now? I don't know. I'm not no computer geek. You know what the problem is? We keep wanting something bigger. We keep trying to find something better that will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. What were we seen before? My heart thirsts for you, O God. Why? Because when we turn and we are... We view and we see and we taste and savor the living God through the page of Scripture. It is so completely satisfying that nothing else comes close and there's nothing that will outdo it or overdo it. That's why I'm saying be careful, Casey Bible Church, lest our Bible reading breeds familiarity and familiarity breeds contempt. Instead, go before the living God, pleading with God to incline our hearts, to open our eyes, to unite our hearts to fear. And as we open the Word of God and we see the omnipotent power of God at work, we fear and tremble before the Word of God. And you know what the promise of Scripture is? Isaiah 66, verse 2, To this one will I look. Who here wants to be noticed by somebody? We all do, don't we? 
right? You walk in and you, your boss is there and you want to make sure you're on time so you're quickly there and you try to look your best for the boss. The boss notices you. You come to school, you want to be noticed by, when you're a young man, you know, you want to be noticed by that special young girl. Young girls, you all dress up beautifully because you want to be noticed by somebody. You want their attention to turn towards you, right? That's <laughs> yes, right. But he says, to this one, I will look. I will turn my attention. I will turn my favor. I will turn my grace. And I will look upon this one. And they will see. They will know in the depths of the heart the intimate fellowship and relationship that we have together. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's exactly what he's talking about. About. Listen. We want to see the living God and we want Him to see us. We want Him to turn toward us and look upon us and show that favor to us. So number one, we come before God in prayer and we plead those things. Secondly this, we read to see and savor Christ on every single page. Every page you open, I was reading through the tabernacle this weekend, all the, the stories about how they wove the threads and cut the gold and the linen and the sitch, and there was, you know, uh, three feet wide and 40 feet long panels and boards and bars and gold and overlaid. And you kind of read the whole thing, and it's like, wow, this is amazing. What's it got to do with the Lord? But when I open my Bible and begin to read with the desperate intention to see Christ in every line, the Bible says that Jesus took those two on the road to Emmaus, And he opened to them all the scriptures explaining the things that concerned him from the Old Testament. And he he showed them himself in the scriptures. I would love to have walked along with him and gone, hey, show me more. We read with the intention to see and savor Christ. Well, I want to finish up this morning. Last point is this. Go back to the text and I want us to see the glory of Jesus in the text. I want us to do exactly what we're talking about all through this morning. I want you and I to look into the text... In a sense, you can put yourself in the, in the seat in the synagogue and listen to what Jesus is saying and listen to the story and I want you to see the grace and the glory of Christ. And we'll finish with this. Notice in grace, Jesus returned to his family to minister to them. He took time out, especially to look after his family, to go back to his hometown. It was grace. They came to see him. They could have come again. They could have come back. He knew In his omniscient wisdom, he knew they would not have any bar of himself, but he still, in grace, he went to them and he opened the word and he began to teach them the word of God. They didn't let him finish, but he began to teach. Notice in grace and truth, Jesus began to minister. In grace, Jesus did not retaliate to the insulting words. You know how every part of every sermon, or there's a part in every sermon for a preacher that just kind of punches him right in the eyes? That's mine. Someone fires a shot, you want to fire one back. Someone fires a comment in a men's Bible study, for example, and you want to fire one back. They come up with one argument, you've got to come up with two, right? They fire one insult, you've got to come up with a better one. It doesn't happen all the time, really, it does. And I'm glad Rick made a comment about coming to the men's Bible study. It's a great time there. But Jesus heard those insulting words. You don't know who your father is. That's what they were saying. Jesus could have said, I and the father are one. I have a relationship with my father that you couldn't even imagine. 
I and my Father will be there at the cross and He will turn away and I will cry out in the absolute agony of my soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know my Father. He could have stood there and retaliated to every single thing. He could have said, You know what? You think you know so much? Watch. And somebody could have died. Watch. Somebody could have been raised again. He could have taken the time to prove every single thing about him. He could have proved every single word wrong. And he said, he said nothing. And I think in that scene, this is the first time there's a full-on rejection of Christ by his own people. And it foreshadows the cross. Because just like at the cross, so here, Jesus says nothing. He's quiet. In grace, Jesus did not correct their assumptions of his birth. In grace, Jesus did not recount with details all his miracles and his healings and his demons cast out. He could have said, you know what, I took the sea. Remember the Sea of Galilee? You live right here, you know what it's like. Great big storm, I spoke a word, it stopped. He could have done all that. Would he have been wrong? No. We have those records in Scripture. But instead, he says nothing. In grace, Jesus made no attempt to prove his existence. He could have said, I am the living God. and I'm standing here before you. But he didn't do it. The one thing he did do, that the scripture records only two times in the whole Bible as it record this. Look at verse number six. He says, and he wondered at their unbelief. I thought, isn't that amazing? He walked out of Nazareth. He walked out of the synagogue. And he just kind of, you can just see it in my mind's eye, him looking back. And there is amazement. They were amazed at him with contempt. But he was amazed and wondering. The other time it's recorded, by the way, the centurion, Roman centurion, who says to him, I'm, I'm just a man under authority. I say, go, and he goes. You just tell, speak the word and my servant will live a long way away. And Jesus marveled at his belief. He marveled at their unbelief. They had every bit of evidence possible to believe. Yet they chose not to. So what's the message for us? The Nazarenes were so familiar with Jesus without fear, without trembling, without humility. And as a result, it became contempt and pride. And it led ultimately to rejection and unbelief. Casey Bible Church, every single one of us sitting in this room, beware, watch out for familiarity with Christ that leads to unbelief. Go back and see the glories of Jesus on every page. Cry out to God to open your eyes, incline your heart, unite your heart to fear His name. When you open the Scriptures... See the wonder of Jesus. Listen, let's be like those little kids. You ever watch a little kid with um, little Nathaniel, for example? You put a brightly colored thing in front of him, and his face just kind of, he's just staring at it. He's awed by it. They're amazed. They look at their fingers, and you see them playing with their fingers and toes. I love watching little babies. Because little babies have a wonder and amazement that's built in at all of the things around them, all of God's creation around them, that's surrounding them. You and I must be so careful not to lose that awe, that wonder, that amazement at who Jesus is. And not only to not lose it, but to focus and feast our eyes, feast our souls on the living God and see His glory. 
Why? Because when we see His glory, we're changed into the same image. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask a favor of the musicians. Can you? Uh, we sing those two songs. You got one more sing, yeah? Okay. Can we sing Behold the Lamb again? And then the last one? Yep, Behold, I got that one. Yeah. All right. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then the guys will come up and lead us in the song. Father in heaven, this morning we give you thanks for the living God. We give you thanks for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we would bless your name. And Father, we would stand before you with fear and trembling before your word. (coughs) Father, to see Jesus, that's our heart's desire. We were singing before you, O God, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. Father, may that be the absolute testimony of everybody in this room, that we have a longing, a deep desire to see the living God. Father, we give thanks for the promise of Scripture that if we will come in humble and contrite hearts and look with trembling at your word, you will turn the favor of your face toward us and look upon us. Father, we give you thanks as we were reminded this morning that the Lord Jesus laid down his own life of himself. No man took it from him. And Father, we give you thanks also for the verse in Isaiah 53, 11 that says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting his soul to grief. Father, we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus Christ gave up his life, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have a relationship with the living God. Father, we plead with you that we would not allow familiarity with your word, familiarity with the things of God to breed contempt. But Father, we plead with you that we would maintain and have the awe and the amazement of a little child, but have it as we view the Lord Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And Father, we plead with you most of all that you would finish your work. Father, do today in our lives, what you have planned to do to change us and make us like Christ. And Father, we plead with you and we ask these things in Jesus' own precious name, for he alone is worthy of the answer. And we would all say, Amen.